good morning. I want to bring you greetings from the uh, men's retreat. I was up there Friday and part of yesterday with the guys, and um, God's doing some great things among the men. We didn't play any soccer, but we had a great game of, um, of uh, frisbee golf. In fact, uh, Bob Niwa and, uh, and Jacques Molyneux barely, barely beat Andrew Scoble and myself. And uh, you don't want to play uh, sports with pastors, let me just say. Uh, we get, we're weird, and we get really competitive. So, um, but no, seriously, God is doing um, good things amongst the men. Pray for them as they're wrapping it up and as they're coming back home. And uh, if you would, as we usually do, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And stand with me when you find that. And uh, we stand, we stand because uh, I think it reminds us that we're going to hear something right now that's vastly different than a lot of what we've heard this week. And this is God's word. And, and you know, they stood in the Bible, in Bible times, they stood and, and often they bowed low to the ground and, and, and raised their hands in worship to God as, as a result of his word. And uh, it's not the standing, but it's the response of our hearts that God wants. God wants our hearts. We're going to read today Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. These are the words of Jesus. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Lord God, we come to you today and we are anxious people. We are anxious about our life. We are anxious about our food. We are anxious about our clothing. We are anxious about so many things. We are so wrapped up in worry. And Lord, we thank you that we can come today and we can read these words. Lord, we thank you that we have assurance from you that as we are exposed to what you say, you are going to change us. Lord, for those of us who know you and love you and, and want to serve you, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see what you have for us here today. 
that, that we would we'd be changed by you more into the people that you want us to be. And Lord, we will give you honor. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A while back, there was a popular song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. People would say to each other, you know, there'd be a problem, there'd be something going on. Well, don't worry, just be happy. As if you were just supposed to forget all your worries. Push through them. Maybe even ignore them. Problem with that is that you, you have to do something with your problems. The problem is, even if you ignore them, they're still there. It really should go like this. Don't worry. Trust God. He's sovereign. Don't worry. Trust God. He's in control. Don't worry. Trust God. He'll take care of you. That's the way it should go. Well, today what I want us to focus on is trusting God with everything. Trusting God with everything. That's the idea behind Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. The idea that appropriate concern and appropriate work are part of trusting God. But worry is inappropriate. Worry is inappropriate when it is misdirected or out of proportion in our lives. So you don't have to live a long time to figure out that something that sounds so simple, like trusting God, and it is a simple concept, simple enough for the youngest child to grasp and understand, but something that seems so simple can be so hard to do, can be so difficult for us, and so complex. But that's the way it is. Now, before we look at these verses today, I want us to take a few steps back, though, and, and look at the bigger picture. The bigger picture, the setting and context with which these verses reside. A context is always important uh, to understanding the, scri- the scriptures and the meaning of the scriptures, uh, to grasp what the original author intended. Uh, it's essential to see the flow in which it, 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 uh, it is uh, landing with what has already been said. Now, I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you are about to move into a new home. Imagine that you were about to move into a new home, but instead of going uh, to see that home, you decide, sight unseen, to buy it or, or to rent it or to lease it. So you agree to go and, and reside there without ever seeing it. But it gets better. It gets better. Instead of driving uh, over there on the day that you move in and, and, and then being able to see the neighborhood and, and being able to see the house and, and see what it looks like from the street and and walking in the door and, and seeing what's inside the home. Instead of that, you are driven there blindfolded. Blindfolded. And they drive you over. And you get out of the car. And they lead you into the front room, into the front, through the front door, and into a room in the house. And they shut the door. Then they take off the blindfold. And you open up your eyes and and you get accustomed to the room, and you, you see what's in the room, but you still have no idea what the rest of the house looks like, what it looks like from the outside, what the neighborhood even looks like. That would be confusing. That would be frustrating. But that is often how it is when we approach God's Word. It is taken out of context it happens to much of Scripture, and it happens with, the, with the, the passage we're looking at today. 
that you, it gets lifted out and read in church apart from what went before, often isolated from its immediate context. And, and what happens with that, the danger with that is assumptions are then made about what it means without even knowing what it says and, and what has been said before. So it's helpful to take a step back, to look at the immediate context, as well as take some big steps back and look at the book with which, in which it re- exists. So for us this morning, it's a good time for a little bit of review at the beginning. Uh, right now we're in the midst of a study of the, of the Gospel of Matthew. And it's one of four Gospels in the New Testament. And our word gospel comes from the Anglo-Saxon word Godspell, which, which means a story about God or good story. And good story works because it fits with the Greek word for gospel, uh, euangelion, good news. Now the four gospels are the good news about Jesus Christ. They're the good news about the most important events in all of history. The perfect life, the sacrificial death, the supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ. These gospels are about Jesus Christ who lived, who died, and who's coming again. And each of the four gospel writers wrote from a unique uh, perspective to to a different, uh, unique uh, audience even. Matthew wrote primarily to Jews, showing that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, First promised in Genesis 3.15, and then all the way through the Old Testament. Mark aimed at a Gentile audience, uh, primarily Romans, showing Jesus as the suffering servant who came to suffer for the sins of the world, to answer the needs of the problem of sin in the world. As an educated Greek, Luke showed that Jesus is the Son of Man. The answer for the needs and hopes of the human race came to seek and save those who were lost. John focused on the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. To strengthen the faith of believers and to lead unbelievers to faith in Christ. And taken together, the, gospel, the four Gospels uh, form a, a uh, wonderful picture, a complete testimony of Jesus Christ. But let's take a step further. Let's take a step closer. We've been looking this year in, in, God, in Matthew's gospel, and even last September we started, and we looked at Matthew chapters 1 through 4. And in that we saw Jesus' background, we saw his birth, we saw his entry into public ministry. And this year we've been focusing on three chapters. Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, basically the greatest sermon ever by the greatest preacher ever. Christ's authority over all things are seen. Christ's authority over everything is focused on righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount focused on kingdom righteousness, right standing with God based on faith in Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount re, uh, reveals some very key things about those who, who follow Christ, about key things about God's work in the lives of those who follow Christ. It shows us a Christian's character, first of all, in the Beatitudes. A Christian's character and their identity as believers in Christ. How his followers are to be different. It shows us a Christian's influence based on their role and their function as salt and light in, in uh, Matthew five thirteen through 16. Influencing the world for Jesus. It shows us 
of their need for the Word of God, the need that believers have for the Word of God, for the authority of Scripture, for the sufficiency of Scripture. You see that in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. It also shows us the heart attitude that believers are to have that should affect their view of everything. Their inward motivation. We see that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Don't do things to be seen. And what's your inward motivation for the things that you do? And now we're in a section that's dealing with the outward deeds of Christians. The outward deeds based on the inward change that Jesus has brought about. So in verses 19 through 34. And basically, what we're seeing is that how knowing Jesus should make a difference in the thoughts and the words and the actions of those who follow him. Right before our passage for today in verses 19 through 24, Jesus has given clear warnings. He's given clear instructions regarding what we are to treasure, whether they be treasures on earth or or whether we're treasuring things in heaven. He, He talks about where we're to focus, whether to have the good eye or the bad eye, and who we are to serve, that we cannot serve God and mammon, God and money, God and possessions. And now Jesus addresses the common problem of worry and anxiety. Something that so many people struggle with. Jesus knows what we're like. And like a a parent who loves their child and wants to to warn them of danger, God is warning us about the danger of of worry. He's warning us about the danger of a focus in life that is not on Him. Jesus is trying to get us to to stop seeking the things that are bad for us and to, to seek the things that are good for us. He points us to what is good. Jesus shows us this is important stuff. He repeats himself three times in this passage. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. To be anxious means to be overly concerned. To be overly concerned to the point of panic. It means to have fear. It means to to have anxiety over something. It means to have anxious care. Many people are filled with anxious care. Many people get into a panic when something happens in life. But Jesus, in this passage, is doing something that is not painless, but it is good for us. He's exposing our false securities. We've been seeing it the last few weeks, really all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is exposing us for what we really are. People saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ who need Jesus every day. He exposes our false securities. Look at verse 25. He's showing us that... that that we can trust God for the necessities of life, and that if we can do that, if we can do that, then we can trust him with everything. Everything else is thrown in. Verse 25 says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, therefore, based upon what he has just said, he says, I tell you. He's saying, listen, I'm talking to you, people. Jesus is saying, look, I want to say something to you, and it's really important. Do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you'll drink, what you will put on, nor about your, uh, your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Don't worry about food, drink, and clothes. The world's trinity of cares, as Spurgeon put it. See, what Jesus is doing is he's indicating something for us. He's saying that the person that lays up treasures in heaven, the person that has the good eye, the person that is serving him, will choose wisely. They will not be a slave to worry. We live in a world that idolizes bodies 
and food. You look in, in almost any magazine, you look at the ads that pop up on the internet or billboards, really, unless you went through life with blinders on, it would be really hard to miss. It's all over the place. Filled with pictures of perfect-looking bodies and perfect-looking food and telling you that you can be happy by looking just right and drinking the right drink and eating the right food and wearing the right clothes. As long as you can even just change your body in a certain way and then you'll be happy. When the people used to this kind of message and this kind of living, what Jesus says is very simple. It's very loving. It's grace-filled. He says, don't be anxious. Don't get so wrapped up. He says, based upon what he has already said before, you won't get all wrapped up. You won't get all anxious if you choose what is right. You see, Jesus was speaking to people that were familiar, like us, familiar with life's daily struggles. You're familiar with life's daily struggles. You're going somewhere tomorrow that might not be a friendly place to go at all times. You're going into, into atmospheres and into, into contexts where people might even be hostile to the gospel. They might even be hostile to you. Jesus was speaking to people that were familiar with the struggles of daily life. But unlike us, who often have you know, stockpiles of food and clothes, much of the time the people that Jesus first spoke to was spent trying to get enough supplies for day-to-day existence. The poor especially didn't have much. So the question of what they would eat the next day, what they would wear the next day, was a very real concern. Coupled with fires and famines and floods that might come in those days, just your day-to-day existence was a concern. Now let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. What Jesus is not saying is, don't think. (laughs) And he's not saying, don't think ahead. What he's saying is, don't think anxiously. He wants us to think. He wants us to plan ahead, but he is forbidding anxious thought. As Barclay put it this way, it's not ordinary prudent foresight Jesus forbids. It is worry. Jesus is not advocating a shiftless, thriftless, reckless, thoughtless attitude to life. He is forbidding a careworn, worried fear which takes all the joy out of life. Jesus used the same word with Martha. Luke chapter 10. Jesus shows up at the house of Mary and Martha and Mary, we see in Luke 10, in verse 38, they go into the village. Martha comes and welcomes him into her house. And she has a sister named Mary who was sitting at the feet of Jesus. But Martha was distracted with serving. And she comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work? Tell her to help me. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are 
You are anxious. Same word. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. It's the same word that Jesus used of the good seed sown among the thorns in the parable of the soils, which one among us today is very fond of. Same word, Luke chapter 8 and, and verse 14. Those, those, the seed that was sown among the thorns and, and choked by the worries of this life. The cares of this life. Paul used the same word in Philippians 4 and verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. With all prayer and petition, be on guard, right? Peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything. See, Jesus says, don't worry. But he doesn't just say, don't worry, be happy. He says, don't worry, trust me. Don't worry, trust me. But, but still, we do worry. You know, he says be anxious for nothing. We get anxious about everything, right? It's helpful to know why. It's helpful to know why we're not to be anxious. Right thinking leads to right action. Right belief about God leads to a greater chance of right action, going in the right direction. And so, let's talk about why we are not to worry. Why aren't we to worry? Well, the first reason that we see it in verse 26 is God is in control. God is in control. He doesn't want us spending all of our time worried about things we can't control. See, we have an option, and we have a really good option. Sometimes you're like, you know, I don't have any options. You're looking for work, and you're like, I don't have any options. Well, here, in this situation, you're worried, you're anxious, you're all bound up, you got options. You got option one, best option is you can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus. You can rely upon him. And what Jesus does here is he reminds us by using living things like birds and flowers. Simple things that sometimes we ignore. Right now there's birds sitting up on a line right above our cars giving us some special gifts. You know, people shoot up birds with BBs, right? But, but Jesus is saying, think about the birds. Verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he says, aren't aren't you more valuable than they? Aren't you more important than birds? So, birds, let's talk about birds then. Birds work hard. Birds... Spend all their energy building nests and feeding their young. They get all the worms, you know. You want to go fishing and you're trying to find some worms, the birds got them all, right? You got to go buy them. uh, Jesus is saying, look at the birds. And and you know what? It's an interesting thing about birds. They're fed by God. But they work hard to get their food. And, And they don't lay up treasures on earth. See, Jesus says, 
Look at, verse, look at verse 26 again. Look at the birds of the air. He said, look at the birds. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. They're not storing up treasures on earth, but they are some of the busiest creatures around. Working hard under God, they get the daily food that he provides. It's like the Israelites uh, wandering through the wilderness, picking up the the manna that God each day provided. He gives, they gather. Give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus says, "Consider, consider how the birds are taken care of who do not work like humans do, but they do their work that God has given them to do, and God feeds them, and you're more valuable than them, Jesus says. Contrary, by the way, to the common view today that man and animals are equals or even, or the, even that man is lesser than animals. You heard about the new tax deduction that might be coming through, right? For your pets? And to go out and get a couple dogs? Worriers, worriers are filled with anxiety over all sorts of things. Worriers are, are filled with anxiety about the past. Regrets and, and missed opportunities. And worriers are, are, are all wrapped up with problems in the present and how to work them out. And worriers are just all worried about the future. What might happen? And what if? I was struck this week by how, how little I truly trust God. How, how much time is spent worrying. But see, if that's you, it might be helpful to... to um, to recognize where you do trust God and build on that. Recognize where you do trust God and build on that. You see, when you sleep, when you were sleeping last night, warriors, when you were sleeping last night, you were trusting God to keep you alive. You were trusting God to keep you breathing. You were trusting God to keep your heart beating. You didn't even think about it. You were sleeping. You were in, you know, la-la land or whatever. You were dreaming and God was taking care of you and and get this warriors you were trusting him see the psalmist says that that the Lord gives to his beloved even in their sleep that God is giving to us even as we sleep and we're trusting him build on that my waking hours are far too often filled with worry though about things I have no control over, about people's opinions and people's responses and and things that may never happen, the what-ifs of life. God is in control. That is reason not to worry. Second reason. God gives and sustains life. You see that in verse 27. We don't and we can't. We don't give ourselves life, and we can't sustain our life. Only God can. Look at verse 27. He says, and which of you, I love the way Jesus asks questions, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his life? I'm reading from the ESV. Some of your translations has, how many of you can add a single cubit to his span? It's pointing to one of two things. Either you you can't make yourself taller, or you can't make yourself live longer. Either way, you can't do it. You can't, well, I guess you could, you know, get yourself all stretched out or something, and then, but it, you're going to go back. You're going to go back. You're getting shorter, okay? You're getting shorter, right? Um, except for the kids. 
you're getting taller. Kids are getting taller. But when you get to be some people's age, you get smaller. Okay? What did Jesus say? You can't, you can't add, you can't even add either a cubit or an hour to your lifespan. Now, the context points to this being the length of your life. But either way, whether it's how tall you are or how long you live, but it, um, God knows the days that were ordained for you when as yet there was even one of them. Psalm 136 and verse 16 says, you can't make yourself taller. You can't make yourself live longer. God knows how long you're going to live and how tall you're going to get. Okay, Worrying cannot extend your life. God gives and sustains life. We don't, we can't. The third reason not to worry, and it's so simple, but sometimes we forget, God cares for his own. God cares for his own. You might say, well, you, might go, you might be one of those people that go on the pity party and say, oh, nobody cares about me. God does. God cares for you. You might be here today, you might be listening to these words, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, 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 but you know what? Nobody cares. God does. God cares for you. God loves you. God is interested in you. He made you. He is sustaining you, and he is caring for you. He cares for his own. Look at verse 28. And by the way, before we read it, if you're in the habit of putting yourself down, which some are, let me say this. You need to understand how valuable you are to God. You need to understand how valuable you are to God. See, Jesus gives one more example. It's about flowers. People don't shoot at those with BB guns. But it's about flowers, and they're beautiful, right? They're beautiful flowers. Here's what he says in verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Some of you probably couldn't figure out what to wear this morning. Too many choices. Um, But why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. The lilies. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Consider the lilies that do nothing but receive what God gives. See how beautifully they're dressed by God. Wildflowers were probably surrounding Jesus and the disciples and the crowds as he spoke these words. Red and and purple anemones on 10-inch stalks as well as blue iris they're they're in uh they're they grow wild on the hills above the sea of galilee verse 29 jesus says now look i tell you again listen i want to say something important to you here even solomon in all his glory was not clothed like flowers picturing solomon's royal robes arguably the most uh Uh, rich and and smart man of his time, maybe even of all time, whose kingdom was legendary, whose wealth prompted a visit even from the Queen of Sheba, no less. And Jesus is saying, think about it. The flowers are better dressed than Solomon was. And then he says, in verse 30, will he not much more clothe you Won't he do that for you? Dallas Willard says that that some people would rather starve than look bad. Think about it for a minute. Little flowers. 
without effort, display a beauty that the most powerful people in the world cannot duplicate. That the most powerful people in all the world, all fixed up, can't emulate. Willard says, if you look at one of these little flowers, and then at the strained ladies and floppy gentlemen who come out to opening nights and awards dinners in our centers of power and culture, you can only feel sorry for the people. They can't even begin to compete. See, Jesus' point that he's making is this. If we do what we're called to do, if we fulfill the roles that God has put us in, if we fulfill our responsibilities as ordained by God, then God is going to be faithful to carry out his responsible care in our lives and in our families and amongst our assemblies and our communities. Now, I got to do a little sidebar here for the, for the attorneys among us, okay? A little sidebar here. I got to go back to something in verse 26. I want to ask and answer a question that will be helpful for, I want this to be helpful for you to take with you tomorrow, okay? When you, when you go to a place that may not agree with what Jesus said, it's going to be hopefully helpful to you in combating some of the current thought, uh, present day teachings that are going on. But it's this. The question I want to ask and answer is, why are people more important than animals? Why are they more valuable, as Jesus says, than animals? Look back with me at verse 26. You could miss this. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Why? Why are you of more value than they? Jesus is speaking here in typical rabbi-like style, using an a-for-shory argument, from the less, arguing from the lesser to the greater. He says, you're... You're more valuable than they. Why? I'm going to give you several reasons, all of them biblical. You could make your own list and make a longer list. I'm just going to give you four reasons. The first is this. It's due to creation. It's due to creation. In Genesis 1 and verse 27, you go back to the very first chapter of the Bible. It's due to the fact that we are made in the image of God. Animals aren't. Okay, verse 20, uh, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So because of creation, but also something else, the very next verse, due to dominion as well. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God has given us dominion. Now, we don't have a license to mistreat his creation, but we also are not to worship it. God has given us dominion over creation, over the earth and its creatures. It's another reason why people are more valuable than animals, as Jesus says. But there's another reason. Salvation. Jesus didn't die for frogs. Jesus died for people, made in his image. Salvation, offered to all people, but not animals. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the whosoever means people, 
made in the image of God. And there's one more reason I'll give you. Evangelization. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That God is going to use us in his plan to reach others. That we have a part to play in the redemptive purposes of God. Praise God that he wants to use us in that way. We who were once lost and without hope and without God in the world, those who come to faith in Christ, God uses in his redemptive purposes to help others come to faith in Christ. So there are reasons that we are more valuable than animals. Now in some way, uh, in several ways actually, but what Jesus is saying in these verses today is that we will either live with anxiety or contentment. That we will either rest in him or, or run around in a frenzy trying to work our own lives out. That we will either doubt God's ability to come through or we will rest in his loving care. Look with me at verse 30. Verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Green grass. What's the deal with the grass? See, we cut our grass and we throw it away or we leave it and then mulch it, right? Well, the, the grass in those days, the green grass was cut. It was dried, it was bundled up, and it was used for fuel in the fire ovens. It was a common biblical picture, too, of how fortunes can change in life. It was a common biblical figure of the frailty of human life and the brevity, the shortness of human life. Every New American Standard Bible has this verse printed somewhere in the front of it. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We will live with either anxiety or contentment. But if God clothes the perishable grass, he will care for you who are eternal. People in the word of God will last forever. So have faith. Jesus is saying to his followers, have faith. Believe. But in verse 30 he says, Oh, you of little faith. It's a, it's a figure of speech that Jesus often used. and it, 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 I think it has a little bit of humor in it. It's a nickname, pretty much. He called them little faiths. If God so arrays the grass of the field that's today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, little faiths? He's calling them little faiths. See, worry doesn't fit with faith. Now, when Jesus says of you of little faith, he's not saying he doesn't, they don't have any faith. He's saying their faith is deficient, not absent. They have faith, but it's little faith. Uh, weak faith. Unpowerful faith, okay? And so Jesus um, used this nickname in other places, actually, in Matthew. Go with me to Matthew 8.26. Matthew 8.26. They're in a boat, and his disciples are in a boat with him, and there arises this great storm on the sea, and the boat's being swamped by the waves, 
and Jesus is asleep. And here's what happens. Verse 25, they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. They're thinking Jesus is going down with the ship too. So what he does, he wakes up. Now, by the way, how, what do you like when you get woken up from a nap? All right? You don't want to wake me up from a nap. You don't want to go there, okay? But he says, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Why are you afraid, little faith? I'm here in the boat with you. Why'd you wake me up? So what did he do? He got up. He rebuked the winds and the sea because he made the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. All was peaceful. Rest. What did they say? They said, wow. What kind of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Who are we dealing with here? Word doesn't fit with faith. John, uh, Matthew chapter 14. Right after Jesus had uh, fed the 5,000, what a miracle. Probably 15,000. Men, women, and children. Matthew chapter 14, he feeds the 5,000. And, and he says to his disciples, you go, get in the boat, and go across, and I'll meet you later. And uh, he dismisses the crowds. Wouldn't you have loved to hear what Jesus was saying to that crowd? He dismisses the crowds, and after he dismisses them, he goes up on the mountain to pray. What happens? Well, it was nighttime, and he was there alone, and the boat was way out far on the water. And what was happening? Well, waves again. It's an interesting water tie-in here, but more waves, more wind, and, and basically, in the middle of the night, um, I believe three in the morning, Jesus comes walking on the water, walking on the Sea of Galilee. What a sight. And, and they're in the boat, and they're seeing this happen. I don't know about you, but I always picture Jesus dry. I think he was wet. There were winds and waves. And, 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 and they're seeing him and they're afraid. They say, it's a ghost. Ah. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command that I walk to you on the water. And, and he says, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. So here's the scene. Peter is walking towards Jesus, who's walking towards Peter, and they're coming to each other on the water. Wow. But then Peter sees the wind and the waves, gets afraid, starts to sink. What does Jesus say to him? He says, take heart, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Then that's Peter, goes on the water, and he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Remember who you're dealing with here. Why did you doubt? When they got in the boat, and the people in the boat worshipped him. Oh, he is the son of God. He is the son of God. There was another place, we won't go to it, but uh, 1720, Jesus heals a boy with a demon. Because his disciples couldn't. And he says, you have little faith. They didn't believe. But here's the simple truth. When I'm worrying, I'm not trusting. When I'm trusting, I'm not worrying. But anxiety comes when I take my eyes off of Jesus and uh, and onto the issues of life 
that are Jesus' control, not mine, on the problems and challenges and situations I cannot control. See, worry and anxiety is the opposite of trusting. So being upset and striving and stressing out, it's the antithesis of resting and, and abiding and waiting on God. There's three ways that that people often misread and misapply these verses. And I'll give them to you briefly, but they they turn it into something different than trust. Here's what they say. People will say, these verses show that you don't need to work. You don't need to work. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, they clear that that clears it up right away. If a person won't work, neither let him eat, said Paul. Work with your hands. So that you will not be in any need. Here's the thing. Birds are fed but not by God. Drop shipping the stuff down there. They're fed by God. Giving them the ability to go get their food. God doesn't do drop shipments. It's there but they got to dig for the worm. People will also say this means we don't have to have any responsibility for other people. It's God's responsibility. 1 Timothy 5.8, in the context of caring for widows, says if anyone does not provide for his own, that means a relative of theirs who's a widow, he is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. The idea is lifelong care for family members is expected. And here's a significant issue here, significant point. God feeds and clothes his own and expects us to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. Scripture interprets Scripture. Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 to 40. The fact is that God feeds and clothes people. That's true. And then he does the feeding and clothing through us to the world. That's the way it's supposed to work. Some people also take these verses to mean that if you follow Jesus, you won't have any problems. You won't have any problems. Everything will be all right. You know, you can, you just... Um, Hey, everything is going to be added to you. You're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and it's going to be great. Problem is, that's not realistic, and that's not true. Jesus said in this world, John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. See, God allows suffering for his good purpose. Some of you have been suffering for years. Some of you are suffering with health situations. Some of you are suffering with relational situations. Some of you are suffering over and over again. But being free from worry and being free from trouble are different things. Different things. You can trust God to take care of you. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 says, The steadfast of mind, he will keep in perfect peace because his mind is stayed on thee. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. But what happens is, anxiety over things leads to ignoring greater realities. We're going to look at that next week. Part two, and look at what seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, what that means. Well, let's end with this. Jesus wants you to trust him. Jesus wants you to trust him. So let me ask you this. What are you most worried about right now? What are you anxious about? What causes you sleepless nights? What fear has you flinching all the time? What, what if is playing the tyrant in your life and running it? Whatever it is, let Jesus have a shot at it. Why do you think Jesus repeated himself three times in ten verses? 
Do not be anxious. Anxiety is a spiritual battle. A spiritual battle for the mind. One that our enemy doesn't want us to gain victory in. One that our loving Heavenly Father has already provided for us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to prevail. But Satan wants us to run in a panic. Jesus Christ wants us to rest in his loving care. See, you may not know where your next meal is coming from. You may not have enough funds in your checking account to pay the rent or the mortgage this week. You may wonder whether you'll have a job tomorrow morning. You may be worried about other things, about your health or about relationships, whether people are going to accept you or reject you, whether you'll ever get married, whether you can ever measure up to your older brother or sister and have your parents' approval and all that. They're all valid concerns. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. But Jesus says this, and this is probably the hardest part of it. Jesus says, we have no reason ever to be anxious. That's what he says. That this world is a perfectly safe place for the one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Until God calls you home, you're safe. And then you'll be safer still. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. All, and I love this about the Bible, all means all. Everything, every part, every situation, every worry, every anxiety, all in its entirety. And I need to remember that every day of my life. That God cares for me, that he's in control, that he is sovereign. He will provide. And you need to remember that. As the worship team comes back up, I want to show you with a little simple illustration what it means to really trust God. I need a volunteer, though. In near the back. I need a volunteer in the back. Brian, you're standing, so you're my volunteer. Okay. Now, watch this. Soccer ball in my hands, in my control. You can't have it. Try to get it. No. Okay. Now watch this. I'm going to roll it to him. That's a strike. And um, now, here's my question to you. What is the status of the ball in relation to me? Out of my hands. Out of my control. The status of the ball is in Brian's hands. He can do with it what? Anything he wants, right? Anything he wants. When we commit our way to, to the Lord, Proverbs 16.3, by the way, says, commit your works to the Lord, your plans will be established. The Hebrew word commit is galal. It literally means to roll. To roll away from yourself. Roll something, literally, like the, rolling the ball. And I think trust is this. It's the God-ordained lack of, uh, loss of control. The God-ordained loss of control. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today and we... Thank you for how good you are and how, how we want to be in control. We know we do, and we fight and we wrestle and we, we just we have trouble trusting. But Lord, the thing that, that you want us to know today is that the thing that we're most anxious about is the thing that you most want us to turn over to you and let you handle. That you want to lift the burden from our shoulders that you want to speak peace to our burdened souls, that you want to provide for us what we cannot. 
And Lord, please help us trust you. 